0: Section 10 of the Theory of Moral Sentiments This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Ashwin Jan The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith Part 2 Section 2 Chapter 3 Of the utility of this constitution of nature it is thus that man who can subsist only in society was fitted by nature to that situation for which he was made all members of human society stand in need of each other's assistance and are likewise exposed to mutual injuries where the necessary assistance is reciprocally afforded from love from gratitude from friendship and esteem the society flourishes and is happy all the different members of it are bound together by the agreeable bands of love and affection and are as it were drawn to one common centre of mutual good offices but though the necessary assistance should not be afforded from such generous and disinterested motives though among the different members of the society there should be no mutual love and affection the society though less happy and agreeable will not necessarily be dissolved society may subsist among different men as among different merchants from a sense of its utility without any mutual love or affection and though no man in it should owe any obligation or be bound in gratitude to any other, it may still be upheld by a mercenary exchange of good offices according to an agreed valuation. Society, however, cannot subsist among those who are at all times ready to hurt and injure one another. The moment that injury begins, the moment that mutual resentment and animosity takes place, All the bands of it are broke asunder, and the different members of which it consisted are, as it were, dissipated and scattered abroad by the violence and opposition of the discordant affections. If there is any society among robbers and murderers, they must at least, according to the trite observation, abstain from robbing and murdering one another beneficence therefore, is less essential to the existence of society than justice. Society may subsist, though not in the most comfortable state, without beneficence, but the prevalence of injustice may utterly destroy it. Though nature, therefore, exhorts mankind to acts of beneficence, By the pleasing consciousness of deserved reward, she has not thought it necessary to guard and enforce the practice of it by the terrors of merited punishment, in case it should be neglected. It is the ornament which embellishes, not the foundation which supports the building, and which it was, therefore, sufficient to recommend, but by no means necessary to impose, justice on the contrary is the main pillar it upholds the whole edifice if it is removed the great the immense fabric of human society that fabric which to raise and support seems in this world if i may say so to have been the particular and darling care of nature must in a moment crumble into atoms in order to enforce the observation of justice therefore nature has implanted in the human breast a consciousness of ill desert those terrors of merited punishment which attend upon its violation as the great safeguards of the association of mankind to protect the weak to curb the violent and to chastise the guilty when though naturally sympathetic feel so little for another With whom they have no particular connections in comparison of what they feel for themselves the misery of one who is merely their fellow creature is of so little importance to them in comparison even of a small conveniency of their own they have it so much in their power to hurt him and may have so many temptations to do so that if this principle not stand up within them in his defence, and pour off them into respect for his innocence, they would, like wild beasts, be at all times ready to fly upon him, and a man would enter an assembly of men as he enters a den of lions. In every part of the universe we observe means adjusted, the nicest artifice to the ends which they are intended to produce, and in the mechanism of a plant or animal body, admire how everything is contrived for advancing the two great purposes of nature the support of the individual and the propagation of the species. But in these in all such objects we still distinguish the efficient the final cause of the several motions and organizations the digestion of the food the circulation of the blood and the secretion of several juices which are drawn from it are operations all of them necessary for the great purposes of animal life yet we never endeavor to account for them from those purposes as from their efficient causes nor imagine that the blood circulates or that the food digests of its own accord and with a view or intention to the purposes of circulation or digestion the wheels of the watch are all admirably adjusted to the end for which it was made the appointing of the hour all their various motions conspire in the nicest manner to produce this effect If they were endowed with a desire and intention to produce it, they could not do it better. Yet, we never ascribe any such desire or intention to them, but to the watchmaker, and we know that they are put into motion by a spring, which intends the effect it produces as little as they do. But though, in accounting for the operations of bodies, We never fail to distinguish in this manner the efficient from the final cause. In accounting for those of the mind, we are very apt to confound these two different things with one another. When, by natural principles, we are led to advance those ends, which a refined and enlightened reason would recommend to us, we are very apt to impute to that reason as to their efficient cause. The sentiments and actions by which we advance those ends and to imagine that to be the wisdom of man which in reality is the wisdom of god upon a superficial view this cause seems sufficient to produce the effects which are ascribed to it and the system of human nature seems to be more simple and agreeable and all its different operations are in this manner deduced from a single principle as society cannot subsist unless the laws of justice are tolerably observed as no social intercourse can take place among men who do not generally abstain from injuring one another the consideration of this necessity it has been thought was the ground upon which we approved of the enforcement of the laws of justice by the punishment of those who violated them. Man, it has been said, has a natural love for society and desires that the union of mankind should be preserved for its own sake, and though he himself was to derive no benefit from it, The orderly and flourishing state of the society is agreeable to him, and he takes delight in contemplating it. Its disorder and confusion, on the contrary, is the object of his aversion, and he is chagrined at whatever tends to produce it. He is sensible, too, that in his own interest is connected with the prosperity of society. And that the happiness perhaps the preservation of his existence depends upon its preservation. Upon every account, therefore, he has an abhorrence of whatever can tend to destroy society, and is willing to make use of every means which can hinder so hated and so dreadful an event. Injustice necessarily tends to destroy it every appearance of injustice therefore alarms him and he runs if i may say so to stop the progress of what if allowed to go on would quickly put an end to everything that is dear to him if he cannot restrain it by gentle and fair means he must beat it down by force and violence and at any rate must put a stop to its further progress. Hence it is, they say, that he often approves of the enforcement of the laws of justice, even by capital punishment of those who violate them. The disturber of the public peace is hereby removed out of the world, and others are terrified by his fate from imitating his example. Such is the account commonly given of our approbation of the punishment of injustice. And so far, this account is undoubtedly true, and we frequently have occasion to confirm our natural sense of the propriety and fitness of punishment, by reflecting how necessary it is for preserving the order of society. When the guilty is about to suffer just retaliation, with the natural indignation of mankind, tells them is due to his crimes, that when the insolence of his injustice is broken and humbled by the terror of his approaching punishment, when he ceases to be an object of fear, with the generous and humane he begins to be an object of pity. The thought of what he is about to suffer extinguishes their resentment, from the sufferings of others to which he has given occasion they are disposed to pardon and forgive him and to save him from that punishment which in all their cool hours they had considered as a retribution due to such crimes here therefore they have occasion to call to their assistance the consideration of the general interest of society they counterbalance the impulse of this weak and partial humanity by the dictates of a humanity that is more generous and comprehensive. They reflect that mercy to the guilty is cruelty to the innocent and opposed to the emotions of compassion with the feel for a particular person a more enlarged compassion with the feel for mankind. Sometimes too, we have occasion to defend the propriety of observing the general rules of justice by the consideration of the necessity to support of society. We frequently hear the young and the licentious ridiculing the most sacred rules of morality and professing, sometimes from the corruption, but more frequently from the vanity of their hearts, the most abominable maxims of conduct. Our indignation rouses, and we are eager to refute and expose such disestable principles. But though it is their intrinsic hatefulness and detestableness which originally inflames us against them, we are unwilling to assign this as the sole reason why we condemn them, or to pretend that it is merely because we ourselves hate and detest them the reason we think would not appear to be conclusive yet why should it not if we hate and detest them because they are natural and proper objects of hatred and detestation but when we are asked why we should not act in such or such manner the very question seems to suppose that to those who ask it this manner of acting did not appear to be, for its own sake, the natural and proper object of those sentiments. We must show them, therefore, that it ought to be so for the sake of something else. Upon this account, we generally cast about for other arguments, and the consideration which first occurs to us is the disorder and confusion of society Which would result from the universal prevalence of such practices. We seldom fail, therefore, to insist upon this topic. But though it commonly requires no great discreetment to see the destructive tendency of all licentious practices to the welfare of society, it is seldom this consideration which first animates us against them. All men even the most stupid and unthinking abode fraud, perfidy and injustice, and delight to see them punished. But few men have reflected upon the necessity of justice to the existence of society. How obvious, soever, that necessity may appear to be. That it is not a regard to the preservation of society which originally interests us the punishment of crimes committed against individuals may be demonstrated by many obvious considerations. The concern which we take in the fortune and happiness of individuals does not, in common cases, arise from that which we take in the fortune and happiness of society. We are no more concerned for the destruction or loss of a single man because this man is a member or part of society, and because we should be concerned for the destruction of society, that we are concerned for the loss of a single guinea, because this guinea is a part of a thousand guineas, and because we should be concerned for the loss of the whole sum. In neither case does our regard for the individuals arise from our regard for the multitude, but in both cases our regard for the multitude is compounded and made up of the particular regards which we feel for the different individuals of which it is composed. As when a small sum is unjustly taken from us, we do not so much prosecute the injury from a regard to the preservation of the whole fortune, as from a regard to that particular sum which we have lost. So when a single man is injured or destroyed, we demand the punishment of the wrong that has been done to him, not so much from a concern for the general interest of society as from a concern for that very individual who has been injured. It is to be observed, however, that this concern does not necessarily include in it any degree of those exquisite sentiments which are commonly called love, esteem, and affection, and by which we distinguish our particular friends and acquaintance. The concern which is requisite for this is no more than the general fellow-feeling which we have with every man merely because he is our fellow creature. We enter into the resentment even of an odious person when he is injured by those to whom he has given no provocation. Our disapprobation of this ordinary character and conduct does not in this case altogether prevent our fellow-feeling with his natural indignation, though with those who are not either extremely candid or who have not been accustomed to correct and regulate their natural sentiments by general rules, it is very apt damp it upon some occasions indeed we both punish and approve of punishment merely from a view to the general interest of the society which we imagine cannot otherwise be secured of this kind are all the punishments inflicted for breaches of what is called either civil police or military discipline Such crimes do not immediately or directly hurt any particular person, but the remote consequences it is supposed do produce or might produce either a considerable inconveniency or a great disorder in society. A sentinel, for example, who falls asleep upon his watch, suffers death by the laws of war, because such carelessness might endanger the whole army. This severity may, upon many occasions, appear necessary, and for that reason, just and proper. When the preservation of an individual is inconsistent with the safety of a multitude, nothing can be more just than that the many should be preferred to the one. Yet this punishment, how necessary soever, always appears to be excessively severe. The natural atrocity of the crime seems to be so little, and the punishment so great, that it is with great difficulty that our heart can reconcile itself to it. Though such carelessness appears very blamable, yet the thought of this crime does not naturally excite any such resentment as would prompt us to take such dreadful revenge a man of humanity must recollect himself must make an effort and exert his whole firmness and resolution before he can bring himself either to inflict it or to go along with it when it is inflicted by others it is not however in this manner that he looks upon the just punishment of an ungrateful murderer or parricide His art, in this case, applauds with ardour, and even with transport, the just retaliation which seems to do such testable crimes, and which, if, by any accident, they should happen to escape, he would be highly enraged and disappointed. The very different sentiments with which the spectator views the different punishments is a proof that his approbation of the one is far from being founded upon the same principles with that of the other. He looks upon the sentinel as an unfortunate victim, who, indeed, must and ought to be devoted to the safety of numbers, but whom still, in his heart, he would be glad to save, and is only sorry that the interests of the many should oppose it. But if the murderer should escape from punishment, it would excite his highest indignation, and would call upon God to avenge, in another world, that crime which the injustice of mankind had neglected to chastise upon earth. For it well deserves to be taken notice of, that we are so far from imagining that injustice ought to be punished in this life merely on account of the order of society, which cannot otherwise be maintained, that nature teaches us to hope, and religion, I suppose, authorizes us to expect that it will be punished even in a life to come. Our senses of its ill desert pursues it, if I may say so, even beyond the grave, though the example of this punishment there cannot serve to deter the rest of mankind who see it not, who know it not, from being guilty of the like practices here. The justice of God, however, we think, still requires that he should hereafter avenge the injuries of the widow and the fatherless, who are here so often insulted with impunity. In every religion and in every superstition that the world has ever beheld accordingly, there has been a Tartarus as well as an Elysium, a place provided for the punishment of the wicked as well as one for the reward of the just. End of section 10 Recording by Ashwin Jain